Chapter Nineteen of the House of the Seven Gables. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please go to LibriVox.org. Recording by Madeira. The House of the Seven Gables by Nathaniel Hawthorne. Chapter Nineteen. Alice's Posies. Uncle Venner trundling a wheelbarrow, was the earliest person stirring in the neighborhood the day after the storm. Pynchon Street, in front of the house of the Seven Gables, was a far pleasanter scene than a by-lane, confined by shabby fences and bordered with wooden dwellings of the meaner class, could reasonably be expected to present. Nature made sweet amends that morning for the five unkindly days which had preceded it. It would have been enough to live for merely to look up at the wide benediction of the sky, or as much of it as was visible between the houses, genial once more with sunshine. Every object was agreeable, whether to be gazed at in the breadth or examined more minutely. Such, for example, were the well-washed pebbles and gravel of the sidewalk, even the sky-reflecting pools in the centre of the street, and the grass, now freshly verdant, that crept along the base of the fences, on the other side of which, if one peeped over, was the multifarious growth of gardens. Vegetable productions of whatever kind seemed more than negatively happy in the juicy warmth and abundance of their life. The pension elm, throughout its great circumference, was all alive, and full of the morning sun and a sweet-tempered little breeze, which lingered within this verdant sphere, and set a thousand leafy tongues a-whispering all at once. This aged tree appeared to have suffered nothing from the gale. It had kept its boughs unshattered, and its full complement of leaves, and the whole in perfect verdure, except a single branch that by the earlier change with which the elm-tree sometimes prophesies the autumn, had been transmuted to bright gold. It was like the golden branch that gained Aeneas and the Sibyl admittance into Hades. This one mystic branch hung down before the main entrance of the seven gables, so nigh the ground that any passer-by might have stood on tiptoe and plucked it off. Presented at the door it would have been a symbol of his right to enter, and been made acquainted with all the secrets of the house. So little faith is due to external appearance, that there was really an inviting aspect over the venerable edifice, conveying an idea that its history must be a decorous and happy one and such as would be delightful for a fireside tale. Its windows gleamed cheerfully in the slanting sunlight. The lines and tufts of green moss here and there seemed pledges of familiarity and sisterhood with nature, as if this human dwelling-place, being of such old date, had established its prescriptive title among primeval oaks and whatever other objects, by virtue of their long continuance, have acquired a gracious right to be. A person of imaginative temperament, while passing by the house, would turn once and again, and peruse it well, its many peaks, consenting together in the clustered chimney, the deep projection over its basement story, the arched window imparting a look, if not of grandeur, yet of antique gentility to the broken portal over which it opened, the luxuriance of gigantic burdocks near the threshold, he would note all these characteristics, and be conscious of something deeper than he saw. 
he would conceive the mansion to have been the residence of the stubborn old Puritan, integrity, who, dying in some forgotten generation, had left a blessing in all its rooms and chambers, the efficacy of which was to be seen in the religion, honesty, moderate competence, or upright poverty and solid happiness of his descendants to this day. One object, above all others, would take root in the imaginative observer's memory. It was the great tuft of flowers, weeds you would have called them only a week ago, the tuft of crimson-spotted flowers in the angle between the two front gables. The old people used to give them the name of Alice's Posies, in remembrance of fair Alice Pynchon, who was believed to have brought their seed from Italy. They were flaunting in rich beauty and full bloom to-day, and seemed, as it were, a mystic expression that something within the house was consummated. It was but little after sunrise when Uncle Venner made his appearance, as aforesaid, impelling a wheelbarrow along the street. He was going his matutinal rounds to collect cabbage leaves, turnip tops, potato skins, and the miscellaneous refuse of the dinner-pot, which the thrifty housewives of the neighborhood were accustomed to put aside, as fit only to feed a pig. Uncle Venner's pig was fed entirely, and kept in prime order on these eleemosynary contributions, insomuch that the patched philosopher used to promise that, before retiring to his farm, he would make a feast of the portly grunter, and invite all his neighbors to partake of the joints and spare-ribs which they had helped to fatten. Miss Hepzibah Pynchon's housekeeping had so greatly improved, since Clifford became a member of the family, that her share of the banquet would have been no lean one, and Uncle Venner, accordingly, was a good deal disappointed not to find the large earthen pan full of fragmentary eatables that ordinarily awaited his coming at the back doorstep of the Seven Gables. "'I never knew Miss Hepzibah so forgetful before,' said the patriarch to himself. "'She must have had a dinner to-day. No question of that. She always has one nowadays. So where's the pot liquor and potato skins, I ask?' "'Shall I knock, and see if she's stirring yet?' "'No, no, t'won't do. "'If little Phoebe was about the house, I should not mind knocking, "'but Miss Hepzibah likely as not was scowled down at me out of the window, "'and look cross even if she felt pleasantly. "'So I'll come back at noon.' "'With these reflections the old man was shutting the gate of the little backyard.' Creaking on its hinges, however, like every other gate and door about the premises, the sound reached the ears of the occupant of the northern gable, one of the windows of which had a side view towards the gate. "'Good morning, Uncle Venner,' said the daguerreotypist, leaning out of the window. "'Do you hear nobody stirring?' "'Not a soul,' said the man of patches. "'But that's no wonder. "'Tis barely half an hour past sunrise yet.' "'But I'm really glad to see you, Mr. Holgrave. "'There's a strange, lonesome look about this side of the house, "'so that my heart misgave me somehow or other, "'and I felt as if there was nobody alive in it. "'The front of the house looks a good deal cheerier, "'and Alice's posies are blooming there beautifully, "'and if I were a young man, Mr. Holgrave, "'my sweetheart should have one of those flowers in her bosom, "'though I risked my neck climbing for it. "'Well, and did the wind keep you awake last night?' "'It did indeed,' answered the artist, smiling. "'If I were a believer in ghosts, and I don't quite know whether I am or not, 
I should have concluded that all the old pensions were running riot in the lower rooms, especially in Miss Hepzibah's part of the house. But it is very quiet now. Yes, Miss Hepzibah will be apt to oversleep herself after being disturbed all night with the racket, said Uncle Venner. But it would be odd now, wouldn't it, if the judge had taken both his cousins into the country along with him? I saw him go into the shop yesterday. At what hour? inquired Holgrave. Oh, along in the forenoon, said the old man. Well, well, I must go my rounds, and so must my wheelbarrow. But I'll be back here at dinner-time, for my pig likes a dinner as well as a breakfast. No meal-time, and no sort of victual has ever seemed to come amiss to my pig. Good morning to you, and Mr. Holgrave, if I were a young man like you, I'd get one of Alice's posies, and keep it in water till Phoebe comes back. I have heard, said the daguerreotypist, as he drew in his head, that the water of Maul's well suits those flowers best. Here the conversation ceased, and Uncle Venner went on his way. For half an hour longer nothing disturbed the repose of the seven gables, nor was there any visitor except a carrier boy, who as he passed the front doorstep threw down one of his newspapers, perhaps above late had regularly taken it in. After a while there came a fat woman making prodigious speed and stumbling as she ran up the steps of the shop-door. Her face glowed with fire-heat, and it being a pretty warm morning, she bubbled and hissed, as it were, as if all a fry with chimney-warmth, and summer-warmth, and the warmth of her own corpulent velocity. She tried the shop-door. It was fast. She tried it again, with so angry a jar that the bell tinkled angrily back at her. "'The deuce take old maid Pynchon!' muttered the irascible housewife. "'Think of her pretending to set up a scent-shop, and then lying abed till noon. These are what she calls gentlefolks' heirs, I suppose. But I'll either start her ladyship or break the door down.' She shook it accordingly, and the bell, having a spiteful little temper of its own, rang obstreperously, making its remonstrances heard, not indeed by the ears for which they were intended, but by a good lady on the opposite side of the street. She opened the window and addressed the impatient applicant. "'You'll find nobody there, Mrs. Gubbins.' "'But I must, and I will find somebody here,' cried Mrs. Gubbins, inflicting another outrage on the bell. "'I want a half-pound of pork to fry some first-rate flounders for Mr. Gubbins's breakfast, and, lady or not, old maid pension shall get up and serve me with it.' "'But do hear reason, Mrs. Gubbins,' replied the lady opposite. She and her brother, too, have both gone to their cousin's Judge Pynchon's at his country seat. There's not a soul in the house but that young daguerreotype man that sleeps in the North Gable. I saw old Hepzibah and Clifford go away yesterday, and a queer couple of ducks they were, paddling through the mud-puddles. They're gone, I'll assure you. And how do you know they're gone to the judges? asked Mrs. Gubbins. He's a rich man, and there's been a quarrel between him and Hepzibah this many a day, because he won't give her a living. That's the main reason of her setting up a scent shop. I know that well enough, said the neighbor. But they're gone. That's one thing certain, and who but a blood relation that couldn't help themselves? I ask you, and taken that awful-tempered old maid and that dreadful Clifford. That's it, you may be sure. Mrs. Gubbins took her departure, still brimming over with hot wrath against the absent Hepzibah. For another half-hour, or perhaps considerably more, there was almost as much quiet on the outside of the house as within. 
The elm, however, made a pleasant, cheerful, sunny sigh, responsive to the breeze that was elsewhere imperceptible. A swarm of insects buzzed merrily under its drooping shadow and became specks of light whenever they darted into the sunshine. A locust sang once or twice, in some inscrutable seclusion of the tree, and a solitary little bird with plumage of pale gold came and hovered about Alice's posies. At last our small acquaintance, Ned Higgins, trudged up the street, on his way to school, and happening, for the first time in a fortnight, to be the possessor of a scent. He could by no means get past the shop door of the Seven Gables. But it would not open. Again and again, however, and a half a dozen other agains, with the inexorable pertinacity of a child intent upon some object important to itself, did he renew his efforts for admittance. He had doubtless set his heart upon an elephant, or possibly, with Hamlet, he meant to eat a crocodile. In response to his more violent attacks, the bell gave, now and then, a moderate tinkle, but could not be stirred into clamour by any exertion of the little fellow's childish and tiptoe strength. Holding by the door-handle, he peeped through a crevice of the curtain, and saw that the inner door communicating with the passage towards the parlour was closed. "'Miss Pynchon!' screamed the child, rapping on the window-pane. "'I want an elephant!' There being no answer to several repetitions of the summons, Ned began to grow impatient, and his little pot of passion quickly boiling over, he picked up a stone with a naughty purpose to fling it through the window, at the same time blubbering and sputtering with wrath. A man, one of two who happened to be passing by, caught the urchin's arm. "'What's the trouble, old gentleman?' he asked. "'I want old Hepzibah or Phoebe or any of them,' answered Ned, sopping. "'They won't open the door, and I can't get my elephant!' "'Go to school, you little scamp,' said the man. "'There's another scent shop round the corner. "'Tis very strange, Dixie,' added he to his companion. "'What's become of all these pensions? "'Smith, the livery stable-keeper, tells me Judge Pynchon "'put his horse up yesterday to stand till after dinner, "'and has not taken him away yet. "'And one of the judge's hired men has been in this morning "'to make inquiry about him. "'He's a kind of person, they say, "'that seldom breaks his habits or stays out o' nights.' "'Oh, he'll turn up safe enough,' said Dixie. "'And as for old maid pension, take my word for it, "'she's run in debt and gone off from her creditors. "'I foretold you remember the first morning she set up shop "'that her devilish scowl would frighten away customers. "'They couldn't stand it. "'I never thought she'd make it go,' remarked his friend. "'This business of scent shops is overdone among the women folks. "'My wife tried it and lost five dollars on her outlay. "'Poor business,' said Dixie, shaking his head. Poor business. In the course of the morning, there were various other attempts to open a communication with the supposed inhabitants of this silent and impenetrable mansion. The man of root beer came in his neatly painted wagon with a couple of dozen full bottles to be exchanged for empty ones. The baker with a lot of crackers which Hepzibah had ordered for her retail custom. The butcher with a nice tidbit which he fancied she would be eager to secure for Clifford. Had any observer of these proceedings been aware of the fearful secret hidden within the house, it would have affected him with a singular shape and modification of horror to see the current of human life making this small eddy hereabouts, whirling sticks, straws, and all such trifles, round and round, right over the black depth where a dead corpse lay unseen. 
The butcher was so much in earnest with his sweetbread of lamb, or whatever the dainty might be, that he tried every accessible door of the seven gables, and at length came round again to the shop where he ordinarily found admittance. "'It's a nice article, and I know the old lady would jump at it,' said he to himself. "'She can't be gone away.' In fifteen years that I have driven my cart through Pynchon Street, I have never known her to be away from home, though often enough, to be sure, a man might knock all day without bringing her to the door, but that was when she'd only herself to provide for. Peeping through the same crevice of the curtain where, only a little while before, the urchin of Ellenfine appetite had peeped, the butcher beheld the inner door not closed, as the child had seen it, but ajar and almost wide open. However it might have happened, it was the fact. Through the passageway there was a dark vista into the lighter but still obscure interior of the parlour. It appeared to the butcher that he could pretty clearly discern what seemed to be the stalwart legs clad in black pantaloons of a man sitting in a large oaken chair, the back of which concealed all the remainder of his figure. This contemptuous tranquillity on the part of an occupant of the house, in response to the butcher's indefatigable efforts to attract notice, so piqued the man of flesh that he determined to withdraw. So, thought he, there sits old maid Pynchon's bloody brother, while I've been giving myself all this trouble. Why, if a hog hadn't more manners, I'd stick em. I call it demeaning a man's business to trade with such people." and from this time forth if they want a sausage or an ounce of liver they shall run after the cart for it. He tossed the tidbit angrily into his cart and drove off in a pet. Not a great while afterwards there was a sound of music turning the corner and approaching down the street, with several intervals of silence, and then a renewed and nearer outbreak of brisk melody. A mob of children was seen moving onward, or stopping in unison with the sound, which appeared to proceed from the centre of the throng, so that they were loosely bound together by slender strains of harmony, and drawn along captive, with ever and anon an accession of some little fellow in an apron and straw hat, capering forth from door or gateway. Arriving under the shadow of the Pynchon Elm, it proved to be the Italian boy, who, with his monkey and show of puppets, had once before played his hurdy-gurdy beneath the arched window. The pleasant face of Phoebe, and doubtless, too, the liberal recompense which she had flung him, still dwelt in his remembrance. His expressive features kindled up as he recognized the spot where this trifling incident of his erratic life had chanced. He entered the neglected yard, now wilder than ever, with its growth of hogweed and burdock, stationed himself on the doorstep of the main entrance, and, opening his show-box, began to play. Each individual of the automatic community forthwith set to work, according to his or her proper vocation. The monkey, taking off his highland bonnet, bowed and scraped to the bystanders, mostly obsequiously, with ever an observant eye to pick up a stray scent. And the young foreigner himself, as he turned the crank of his machine, glanced upward to the arched window, expectant of a presence that would make his music the livelier and sweeter. The throng of children stood near, some on the sidewalk, some within the yard, two or three establishing themselves on the very doorstep, and one squatting on the threshold. Meanwhile the locust kept singing in the great old pension elm. "'I don't hear anybody in the house,' said one of the children to another. "'The monkey won't pick up anything here.' "'There is somebody at home,' affirmed the urchin on the threshold. "'I heard a step.' Still the young Italian's eye turned sidelong upward 
and it really seemed as if the touch of genuine, though slight and almost playful, emotion communicated a juicier sweetness to the dry, mechanical process of his minstrelsy. These wanderers are readily responsive to any natural kindness, be it no more than a smile, or a word itself not understood, but only a warmth in it, which befalls them on the roadside of life. They remember these things, because they are the little enchantments which, for the instant, for the space that reflects a landscape in a soap-bubble, build up a home about them. Therefore the Italian boy would not be discouraged by the heavy silence with which the old house seemed resolute to clog the vivacity of his instrument. He persisted in his melodious appeals. He still looked upward, trusting that his dark, alien countenance would soon be brightened by Phoebe's sunny aspect. Neither could he be willing to depart without again beholding Clifford, whose sensibility, like Phoebe's smile, had talked a kind of heart's language to the foreigner. He repeated all his music over and over again, until his auditors were getting weary. So were the little wooden people in his show-box, and the monkey most of all. There was no response save the singing of the locust. "'No children live in this house,' said a schoolboy at last. "'Nobody lives here but an old maid and an old man. You'll get nothing here. Why don't you go along?' "'You fool! Why do you tell him?' whispered a shrewd little Yankee, caring nothing for the music, but a good deal for the cheap rate at which it was had. "'Let him play if he likes. If there's nobody to pay him, that's his own lookout.' Once more, however, the Italian ran over his round of melodies. To the common observer, who could understand nothing of the case except the music and the sunshine on the hither side of the door, it might have been amusing to watch the pertinacity of the street performer. "'Will he succeed at last?' Will that stubborn door be suddenly flung open? Will a group of joyous children, the young ones of the house, come dancing, shouting, laughing into the open air and cluster round the show-box, looking with eager merriment at the puppets and tossing each a copper for long-tailed mammon the monkey to pick up? But to us, who know the inner heart of the Seven Gables as well as its exterior phase, there was a ghastly effect in this repetition of light popular tunes at its doorstep. It would be an ugly business, indeed, if Judge Pynchon, who would not have cared a fig for Paganini's fiddle in his most harmonious mood, should make his appearance at the door with a bloody shirt-bosom and a grim frown on his swarthily white visage, and motion the foreign vagabond away. Was ever before such a grinding out of jigs and waltzes where nobody was in the queue to dance? Yes, very often. This contrast or intermingling of tragedy with mirth happens daily, hourly, momently. The gloomy and desolate old house, deserted of life and with awful death sitting sternly in its solitude, was the emblem of many a human heart which nevertheless is compelled to hear the thrill and echo of the words gaiety around it. Before the conclusion of the Italian's performance, a couple of men happened to be passing on their way to dinner. "'I say, you young French fellow,' called out one of them, "'come away from that doorstep and go somewhere else with your nonsense. "'The Pynchon family live there, and they are in great trouble just about this time. "'They don't feel musical today. "'It is reported all over town that Judge Pynchon, who owns the house, has been murdered, "'and the city marshal's going to look into the matter, so be off with you at once.' "'As the Italian shouldered his hurdy-gurdy, he saw on the doorstep a card which had been covered all the morning by the newspaper that the carrier had flung upon it, but was now shuffled into sight. He picked it up, and, perceiving something written in pencil, 
gave it to the man to read. In fact, it was an engraved card of Judge Pynchon's with certain penciled memoranda on the back, referring to various businesses which it had been his purpose to transact during the preceding day. It formed a prospective epitome of the day's history, only that affairs had not turned out altogether in accordance with the program. The card must have been lost from the judge's vest pocket in his preliminary attempt to gain access by the main entrance of the house. Though well soaked with rain, it was still partially legible. "'Look here, Dixie,' cried the man. "'This has something to do with Judge Pynchon. See, here's his name printed on it, and here, I suppose, is some of his handwriting.' "'Let's go to the city marshal with it,' said Dixie. "'It may give him just the clue he wants. "'After all,' whispered he in his companion's ear, "'it will be no great wonder if the judge has gone into that door and never come out again. "'A certain cousin of his may have been at his old tricks. "'An old maid pension having got herself in debt by the scent shop, "'and the judge's pocket-book being well filled, "'and bad blood amongst them already. "'Put all these things together and see what they make.' "'Hush, hush!' whispered the other. "'It seems like a sin to be the first to speak of such a thing. "'But I think with you that we had better go to the city marshal.' "'Yes, yes,' said Dixie. "'Well, I always said there was something devilish in that woman's scowl.' The men wheeled about accordingly and retraced their steps up the street. The Italian also made the best of his way off, with a parting glance up at the arched window. As for the children, they took to their heels, with one accord, and scampered as if some giant or ogre were in pursuit, until at a good distance from the house they stopped as suddenly and simultaneously as they had set out. Their susceptible nerves took an indefinite alarm from what they had overheard. Looking back at the grotesque peaks and shadowy angles of the old mansion, they fancied a gloom diffused about it which no brightness of the sunshine could dispel. An imaginary Hepzibah scowled and shook her finger at them, from several windows at the same moment. An imaginary Clifford, for—and it would have deeply wounded him to know it—he had always been a horror to these small people—stood behind the unreal Hepzibah, making awful gestures in a faded dressing-gown. Children are even more apt, if possible, than grown people to catch the contagion of a panic terror. For the rest of the day the more timid went whole streets about— for the sake of avoiding the seven gables, while the bolder signalized their hardihood by challenging their comrades to race past the mansion at full speed. It could not have been more than half an hour after the disappearance of the Italian boy, with his unseasonable melodies, when a cab drove down the street. It stopped beneath the pension elm. The cabman took a trunk, a canvas bag, and a bandbox from the top of his vehicle and deposited them on the doorstep of the old house. A straw bonnet, and then the pretty figure of a young girl came into view from the interior of the cab. It was Phoebe, though not altogether so blooming as when she first tripped into our story, for in the few intervening weeks her experiences had made her graver, more womanly, and deeper-eyed, in token of a heart that had begun to suspect its depths, Still there was the quiet glow of natural sunshine over her. Neither had she forfeited her proper gift of making things look real rather than fantastic within her sphere. Yet we feel it to be a questionable venture, even for Phoebe, at this juncture to cross the threshold of the seven gables. 
Is her healthful presence potent enough to chase away the crowd of pale, hideous, and sinful phantoms that have gained admittance there since her departure? Or will she likewise fade, sicken, sadden, and grow into deformity, and be only another pallid phantom, to glide noiselessly up and down the stairs and affright children as she pauses at the window? At least we would gladly forewarn the unsuspecting girl that there is nothing in human shape or substance to receive her, unless it be the figure of Judge Pynchon, who, wretched spectacle that he is, and frightful in our remembrance since our night-long vigil with him, still keeps his place in the oaken chair. Phoebe first tried the shop-door. It did not yield to her hand, and the white curtain, drawn across the window which formed the upper section of the door, struck her quite perceptive faculty as something unusual. Without making another effort to enter here, she betook herself to the great portal under the arched window. Finding it fastened, she knocked. A reverberation came from the emptiness within. She knocked again, and a third time and listening intently fancied that the door creaked as if Hepzibah were coming with her ordinary tiptoe movement to admit her. But so dead a silence ensued upon this imaginary sound that she began to question whether she might not have mistaken the house, familiar as she thought herself with its exterior. Her notice was now attracted by a child's voice, at some distance. It appeared to call her name. Looking in the direction whence it proceeded, Phoebe saw little Ned Higgins a good way down the street, stamping, shaking his head violently, making deprecatory gestures with both hands, and shouting to her at mouth-wide screech. "'No, no, Phoebe!' he screamed. "'Don't you go in! There's something wicked there! Don't, don't go in!' But as the little personage could not be induced to approach near enough to explain himself, Phoebe concluded that he had been frightened on some of his visits to the shop by her cousin Hepzibah. For the good lady's manifestations, in truth, ran about an equal chance of scaring children out of their wits, or compelling them to unseemly laughter. Still, she felt the more for this incident how unaccountably silent and impenetrable the house had become. As her next resort, Phoebe made her way into the garden, where, on so warm and bright a day as the present, she had little doubt of finding Clifford, and perhaps Hepzibah also, idling away the noontide in the shadow of the arbor. Immediately on her entering the garden gate, the family of hens half ran, half flew to meet her, while a strange grimalkin which was prowling under the parlour window took to his heels, clambered hastily over the fence, and vanished. The arbour was vacant, and its floor, table, and circular bench were still damp, and bestrewn with twigs in the disarray of the past storm. The growth of the garden seemed to have got quite out of bounds. The weeds had taken advantage of Phoebe's absence and the long-continued rain to run rampant over the flowers and kitchen vegetables. Maul's well had overflowed its stone border and made a pool of formidable breadth in that corner of the garden. The impression of the whole scene was that of a spot where no human foot had left its print for many preceding days, probably not since Phoebe's departure, for she saw a side-comb of her own under the table of the arbor, where it must have fallen on the last afternoon when she and Clifford sat there. The girl knew that her two relatives were capable of far greater oddities than that of shutting themselves up in their old house, as they appeared now to have done. Nevertheless, with indistinct misgivings of something amiss, and apprehensions to which she could not give shape, she approached the door that formed the customary communication between the house and garden. It was secured within, like the two which she had already tried. 
She knocked, however, and immediately, as if the application had been expected, the door was thrown open by a considerable exertion of some unseen person's strength, not wide, but far enough to afford her a sidelong entrance. As Hepzibah, in order not to expose herself to inspection from without, invariably opened a door in this manner, Phoebe necessarily concluded that it was her cousin who now admitted her. Without hesitation, therefore, she stepped across the threshold and had no sooner entered than the door closed behind her. End of chapter 19